0: Shalom. Shalom. Thank you. You know, it's a real privilege and a pleasure for us to be with you here today at First Baptist Church. Uh, we ourselves have been here a couple of, well, three times now, and, and um, I'm delighted to be able to be back. One of the things that I like about this church is the fact that uh, it reminds me of, of, you know, just Jewish things, because every meeting you have has got a meal. And it's kind of like, that's just like a Jewish home. And so it's really, really a pleasure to be with you here this morning. And I thank you for inviting us. Uh, you know, I once saw a quote um, from John Murray, who um, is the former president of the American Atheist Society. And it appeared in Life magazine, as you can see on the screen. And it appeared back in the 1990s. So this is like ancient history. Um, the edition had a huge picture, as you can see, of Jesus on the cover with the words, who was he? Now, here's what Murray said back then. He said, there was no such person in the history of the world as Jesus Christ. The Bible is a fictional, non-historical narrative. It's a myth that's good for business. Now, that quote is from Life magazine back in December of 1994. Now, let me just stop and say that we know that this is wrong, because Jesus is mentioned by the secular historian Josephus as having lived precisely at the time the Bible says so. So we know that this is wrong. Now, this morning, I'd like to talk about how we can know the Bible isn't just fictional, non-historical, narrative, and that when I'm done, I want to talk about what difference it makes for us today. Augustine, the famous 4th century bishop in North America said, as you can see, the New Testament is in the Old Concealed, the Old Testament is in the New Revealed. In other words, what we learn about the Jesus in the New Testament, his virgin birth in Bethlehem, his rejection by his contemporaries, which were my Jewish people, His atoning death and resurrection, his being the Son of God, it's all there in the Old Testament. But as you read your New Testament, that shouldn't come as any surprise, because Jesus said it himself. In the Gospel of John, chapter 5, verse 39, he challenged a group of Jewish religious leaders. He said, you diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me. That's verse 39. But he continued, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me, in verse 46. Now, when we look at the four gospels, we find the Bible repeating a phrase again and again. This, and what we're talking about is some event, happened so that the scriptures might be fulfilled which are followed by a prophecy from the Old Testament. Take a look with me for just a moment at Matthew chapter 13, and we're going to look at just two verses, and you can get there rather quickly. Matthew 13, and we're going to look at verses 33 and 34. This is just as one example of what I'm talking about here. Matthew 13, beginning in verse 33, where it says, He spoke another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. All these things Jesus spoke to the crowds in parables, and he did not speak to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. So you understand what I'm saying here. In fact, when it comes to the events of Jesus' life, The Bible quotes over 30 such prophecies. The last Old Testament prophet, Malachi, wrote around 450 B.C. Therefore, every one of these 30 prophecies were written at least four centuries before Jesus was born. And some of those prophecies go back even 15 centuries before he was born. Now, I have a friend who imagines that in heaven, God will have an endless video library that contains every historical event that you've ever wanted to see. And when we get to heaven, we can use our heavenly library card to check out anything that we want to see exactly how it really happened. How would that be? Better than Netflix, right? What event does my friend most wanna see? He wants to see the guy, the walk that Jesus took with a couple of guys to Emmaus, a small town about seven miles from Jerusalem. Now, I figure, having been to Israel a number of times, and most recently in Jerusalem, that it took at least three hours since there were no sidewalks, and the country around Jerusalem is very hilly. Now, let me read, or let us read, what Luke tells us about the conversation that they had. I'm looking at Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 27. And behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. Besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. But also some women among us amazed us. When they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women also had said. But him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Now, I don't know about you, but it's hard to imagine how those two guys must have felt as they walked along They had just seen the one they thought was the Messiah, the King of Israel, die. All their hopes, all their dreams, their joy hanging dead on a cross. It's the third day since Jesus was killed and time is running out. And what I mean by that is, you see, in Jewish folklore, the soul hovers near the dead body for three days until the face changes and it can't recognize the person anymore. Then it departs. Now, these guys walking toward Emmaus might have had a glimmer of hope that somehow there was still a chance that Jesus' spirit might reunite with his body. They start going into what the women had said, and finally, he can't stand it anymore. He says, Oh, foolish men, slow to understand and slow to believe. Then Luke tells us that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. The threefold division of the Old Testament that Jesus mentions a few verses later in verse 44 is the way that a Jewish Bible is organized today and the writings. So we're talking about Psalms, Proverbs, and some other Old Testament books. And so Jesus is walking along with Cleopas and his buddy for several hours explaining how those scriptures speak of him. Now, that's exactly what I want to do this morning with you, except that rather than have two to three hours, I have about 20 minutes left. Here is what I propose to do. I want us to go back and do a little tour of the Old Testament and look at some of these 30 prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. Put on your seatbelt because we're going to have to go very fast. We're going to look at two passages from the Torah, two passages from the prophets, and two passages from the writings. Now, the Messiah, according to the five books of Moses, known as the Torah, the law, Genesis 3.15 was written about 1500 BC. In the story of the Garden of Eden, we read a curse that God put on the serpent, whom we later know to be Satan or the enemy of God. That curse actually contains a blessing to the woman and to people who will come after her. Let me read that for you. It says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now, we learn three things here. First, the child who will come to defeat the serpent is the child of a woman. That's no big deal, is it? Is it? Well, everyone who was born is born of a woman, right? Uh, not in Judaism. Okay, don't get you know like don't be mistaken. I mean, it's like it is a child is born of woman. However, when I say not in Judaism, Abraham begat Isaac, yes? Where was Sarah? Isaac begat Jacob. Where was Rebekah? Men have children in Judaism. Not biologically, but genealogically. So, the Bible could have made a biological statement here that the child is the son of a man and a woman. Or it could have made a genealogical statement, as it does everywhere else, that the child is the son of a man. But it doesn't it starts with an exception. This child is the son of a woman. It doesn't exactly say virgin birth, but it sure anticipates it, doesn't it? Second, we learn that the child will bruise the head of the serpent. This is a picture of conquest and victory. Now, some people may remember, and this you also have to put on your ancient history caps, some might remember Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion, And he symbolized this moment when Jesus crushed a snake in the Garden of Gethsemane. A snake emerges from beneath the devil's foot and slithers over to Christ, who is intensely praying. He doesn't seem to take note of the serpent until it's directly beneath him when he suddenly stands and crushes the serpent's head under his foot. Finally, we learn that the son would be wounded in the heel. What kind of Messiah gets wounded in the heel, perhaps only one who was hung on a cross. Then there's Deuteronomy 18, verses 18 and 19, also written about 1500 BC. God told Moses, but as for you, Bethlehem Ephratah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity." Well, he also said, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, Hmm. and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. It shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Now, in Judaism, Moses was and is still considered to be the greatest prophet that ever lived. If you were to ask somebody Jewish today if there had ever been a prophet like Moses, you know what they would say? Nope. Moses is the greatest prophet who ever lived. Now, the Torah's closing words give us a clue that my people should be looking for this prophet. Deuteronomy chapter 34 records Moses' death. So obviously, he didn't write it. It's possible that Joshua wrote it. And though in verse 9, he tells us that Moses laid hands on him to transfer leadership to him, Joshua tells us in verse 10 that since that time, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses. In other words, I'm not him, folks. Be on the lookout. He's still to come. When John the Baptist burst onto the scene in prophetic garb and with a prophet's voice, the Pharisees came to him and asked, are you the prophet? They were waiting, looking. But John said, no, there is one coming after me who is greater than me. The Torah points forward to one yet to come that our New Testament identifies as Jesus. Now, the Messiah, according to the prophets, there are two. There are so many mess- messianic passages in our prophets, but let's look at just two. You have Micah 5-2 there on the screen, and I've already read that for you. But let me say that in the 8th century B.C., the prophet writes that a coming ruler of Israel would be born in Bethlehem Ephratah. Very interesting. The fact that it adds Ephratah lets us know which Bethlehem it is, since there were several towns with the same name. Just like we have Bethlehem, Pennsylvania today, Bethlehem Ephratah was just south of Jerusalem. Now, how strange. Why? This little town that's so small, it's not even in the where's where in Israel. The reason is because that Bethlehem happens to be the ancestral home of King David from whose family the Messiah must come. Now, you need to note what else Micah tells us. He says that this one's beginnings are from long ago, from days of eternity. The Hebrew words here are stronger than the English. Mikadem, which is within this passage of scripture, means from the east, In other words, from before the sun rises in the east or eternity past. And then another word in Hebrew is me olam, which means from days of eternity. Who is an eternal being? Only God. So somehow God takes on flesh and is born. Then there is Isaiah 53 written about 725 B.C., It says, But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all I don't want to get that far. To fall upon him. This prophecy is the clearest one chapter description of the messiah in the old testament maybe the whole bible and very important for those of us seeking to bring the truth of yeshua jesus to the jewish people now if you have any jewish friends or family and you ever have the chance to share any scripture with them any bible passage this is your passage the passage the prophet describes a suffering servant one who gives his life as a guilt offering for many people it describes him as someone who would be rejected and hated, though he had done no wrong, but through whose death our sins are forgiven. It even hints that he would be raised from the dead. After the sufferings of his soul, he would see the light of life. The problem is, my people face the same thing that were faced by the disciples. Even in the days of Jesus, Israel was not waiting For a suffering servant Messiah to come, but they were waiting for a triumphant king like David, who would right all wrongs, place Israel back in her rightful position, usher in the days to come, the age to come, when the lion would lie down with the lamb and bring peace to the world. Listen, if you had to choose between Superman and Clark Kent, who would you choose? That's right, everyone wants a Superman Messiah. But the New Testament writers came to understand the purpose of Jesus' first appearance and quoted this chapter to explain it for the rest of us. Now, then there's Daniel 9, chapter 24 through 26. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after the sixty-two weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now, here we find more clues about the coming Messiah. The passage is really a tough one, but there are some things that are clear. In verses 25 and 26, they tell us about the timing of the Messiah's coming. He must come between two events. And by the way, when it talks of the weeks, it's not literal weeks. It's weeks of years. But Messiah must come between two events that we can identify. After the decree that allowed the Jews to return to Jerusalem and rebuild it in verse 25, and before the city and temple are destroyed a second time in verse 26. Now you, remember, you may remember from your Bible reading that the Babylonians destroyed the city in 586 BC and took the people captive to Babylon. When the Persian Empire overtook them, its king decreed that the Jewish people could return to Jerusalem and rebuild the city. Now, sometime after that, and as I said, the seventh repre- represent years, the anointed one comes. That's the Messiah. And is cut off. And the Hebrew, and it, it, that basically when it says cut off, it means to be killed. And again, it's not exactly the popular image of a Messiah figure. But then the city and the temple are destroyed a second time, which occurred at the hand of the Romans in the first century in 70 AD. Now, according to this passage, the Messiah has already come. So finally, backing up to verse 24, Daniel tells us what this is all for. The purpose of the Messiah's death is to bring in everlasting righteousness, to forgive sins, and to put an end to iniquity. The purpose of the death of Messiah was not to defeat political and military enemies— And give Israel a piece of property. It was to forgive our sins and to make us clean before a holy God. Now, this passage is so controversial in Judaism that rabbis have pronounced a curse on those who try to calculate the Messiah's advent from it. Maimonides, one of our most famous rabbis, has said Daniel has explained to us the knowledge of the end times. However, since they are secret, The wise, the rabbis, have barred the calculation of the days of Messiah's coming so that the untutored populace will not be led astray when they see that the end times have already come, but there is no sign of the Messiah. Now, centuries before him, there was another rabbi by the name of R. Samuel Bar Nachmani who also commented on this passage, and he said, Blasted be the bones of those who calculate the end. You don't want to have your bones blasted, do you? then you better not read this. They knew what the first century Jewish historian Josephus had said. This is what he said. He, Daniel, not only predicted the future like the other prophets, but specified when the events would happen. Then you have Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip They wag the head saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. So here we've come to the crucifixion psalm. The psalm quoted by our Messiah while on the cross, paying for our sins. You know when King David wrote this psalm? About a thousand years before Jesus was on the earth. Some 300 years before the Romans brought crucifixion into the world. Prophetically, he wrote things that modern doctors now say are surprising clinical descriptions of the sufferings of those undergoing crucifixion. All my bones are out of joint. My strength is dried up. My tongue cleaves to my jaws. They pierced my hands and my feet. It describes those who ridiculed him as he hung, who despised him, who shook their heads, and who cast lots for his clothing. It was the first line of this psalm that Jesus shouted, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, I heard one rabbi say that this proves that Jesus died in confusion and despair. But he missed the point. Jesus knew that as he quoted that first verse, people would begin rehearsing the rest of the psalm in their minds, as if a narrator was describing exactly what was taking place. Because you know what? If I say to you, Amazing Grace... If I say, amazing grace to you, or, oh say can you see, you know what comes next, don't you? The bystanders were biblically literate people, and Jesus used his last breaths to draw people to himself as he invited them to reflect on the images portrayed in Psalm 22 and the events before their eyes. You know, if we had time, we could talk for hours about Jesus in the Old Testament, even as he did with the two on the road. We could talk about many more prophecies. We could talk about other ways that Jesus appeared in the Old Testament. The awesome angel of the Lord. The sacrificial system. The rock in the wilderness. The holidays that point to him. The tabernacle. The priesthood and other character types that foreshadow him. Hebrew words and poems that all reveal him. The New Testament is in the Old Concealed And the old is in the new revealed. So my question is, what's the point? What's the point? You know, one of our board members in Jews for Jesus is the pastor um, of a major church in the Washington, D.C. area. And he said that one day he was talking with a research scientist and a mathematician who formerly worked in the Pentagon, and she happens to be a friend of mine as well. And she researched the probability of one and the same person fulfilling all of these 30 Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah. She calculated that the probability was 1 times 10, with 100 zeros after it. Now, even if these numbers are close to being right, then the idea that the Bible just got lucky in getting all this right is absolutely insane. Instead, the only proposition that makes any sense is that the Bible is exactly what it claims to be. And this is how another friend of mine put it. It's a supernatural book from a supernatural God giving us supernatural truth about a supernatural Messiah who through the cross offers us a supernatural relationship with God so that we can live a supernatural life That has a supernatural destination in heaven at its end. Now, I'm not a mathematician, but I've heard that the odds of Jesus fulfilling just eight of these prophecies was like stacking quarters two feet high across the entire state of Texas, putting a mark on just one of those quarters, and expecting someone to go find that one quarter with the mark on it on the first try. I want to close by telling you that you can be sure of your faith in jesus and in the bible you know you need to know that when i when my wife and i bring the message of jesus to my jewish people i we our ministry faces all kinds of obstacles there are what we call anti-missionaries out there you know what an anti-missionary is they're anti what we do what do we do we proclaim the gospel They're trying to prevent Jewish people from believing in Jesus by trying to prove that the Old Testament prophecies don't point to him, but never have they had a compelling argument. Remember, the odds of anyone fulfilling the 30 Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah are one with a hundred zeros after it. Until someone can figure out how to undo one with a hundred zeros after it, We're sitting secure in our faith. We can stick with the faith once for all, delivered to the saints. As Jude put it, and more importantly, when it's all said and done, and we're in eternity, you'll be glad that you did. I have just a few more minutes, and so I'm going to use them judiciously. First of all, I want to let you know again, how pleased my wife and I are to be with you here today to represent Jews for Jesus. And when you came in, in your bulletins, you got a card like this, which has got a pretty picture. Um, Well, half of it is pretty. It's the part that's got my wife on it. You've got to accept me with it because that's the way it was done. I'd like to have you take that out now. And I'd also like to ask you to uh, tear the card along the perforated line um, and then fill out Now, I know that for some of you, by filling this out, you're saying, what do I want to fill this out for? Well, we want you to fill this out because we want to keep in touch with you. And really, the only way that we can keep in touch with you today is by your filling this out, because this is a way of us being able to communicate with you, whether or not it's by email or via snail mail. We want to let you know how you can be praying for us, because we need your help in three ways. The first way is through prayer. And really, unless we can communicate with you, how do you know what to pray for? So we're asking you to fill this out and drop it when the offering plate comes around a little bit later. And even if you've already done this before and you're getting mail from us, if you fill this out and uh, you can see that there's a little box next to, towards the bottom that says, "I already receive your regular communications and just want to reaffirm my interest." You know by doing that, you're also letting us know that you're still standing with us, and we really do need your help. Now Pastor has already stolen my thunder, and he talked all about where our works are. And before I close, we're going to show you a two-minute video because one of the things that we're really excited about is just how the work in Israel has progressed. You know, we have over 30 full-time staff people in Israel alone. And we have just completed an 18-year project known as Operation Behold Your God. And the video is going to tell you a little bit about it. But the thing that I would like to let you know is that we really need your help in prayer. We also want to help you to share the gospel with your friends, your relatives, and we have a table set up in the back, and we'll be back there afterwards uh, to answer any questions you might have.